Hey, everybody. How's it going, guys? My name is Miles with Boyer. And uh, y'all, I'm not going to beat around the bush with a long intro today because I just had to cut off one of the most uh, like prolific speakers, most, most well-known people in our industry today, but also one of the guys that has just absolutely shaped the way I think a lot of us see storytelling. And I had to interrupt him in order to, uh, to do this stupid little intro. So I'm going to just intro um, Jonas Peterson, who, who needs no bio. Uh, if you've been living under a rock and you don't know who Jonas Peterson is, stop now, Google him, and then, and then come back. Because um, I think what's about to happen in the next hour is just a candid conversation with, I don't say this lightly, like a true legend, an, an actual, a person who has actually shifted the way that I think uh, photographic storytelling is done, especially in the wedding market. So Okay, Jonas, that's my intro. Okay, so before before I cut you off, yeah. you were uh, you were talking about um, you know your time in in the uh, in the advertising world and how that has sort of shaped your where where you are now. So just pick up as though we're in the middle of that conversation. Let's just keep chatting. Um, well, it's a long. Get ready for a ramble. Um, it's a long. It's always when I talk. And that's something I'm struggling with and I always struggle with. Like, I teach a lot, and uh, but I also talk a lot. And so for me, to be concise and be, it's difficult for me. But I would say that I worked, I worked in advertising for over 10 years. And I was um, very, ironically, I was very successful at that. I was highly paid. I was working with big brands, beer brands, car brands. Uh, and my last job that I had, I was in charge for, McDonald's uh, creative output in, in in Asia in Australia. So I was, I had very high up jobs, and um, I'm a super competitive person. So for me, I uh, I always try and I set a goal, and then I want to try and reach the top of that ladder. Um, and then there's really nothing stopping me from doing that. Um, I just try and okay, look at what I do and how can I get there? What do I need to do better? constantly trying to evolve in why isn't this working? Why am I not good enough? Anyway, so I was working with corporate clients and um, I was starting to resent what I was doing more and more. And I was living in this bubble of just, uh, to be frank, to partying and doing drugs and um, just a really destructive lifestyle while making like $300,000 a year. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was hurting anyone but myself, but I was starting to get a lingering feeling that, man, is this what I have to offer? Is this what I want to do? Is this what, um, I don't know, it wasn't about legacy, but it felt like I was just turning 30 and I'm feeling like, I don't want to, is this what I want to do for, is this what I want to be sort of at the end of my days? It was like, you've made some good advertising campaigns. And I wasn't really, more and more I thought about it. And in the end, um, I made myself so, um, I was really hard to work with in the end in advertising. So I, in the end, I got fired because I was, I was so well regarded so I could behave any way I wanted. And I did. I was just angry in meetings and I was yelling at people. And, and I started to realize I'm becoming an asshole. I, I'm, I'm becoming um, someone I don't want to be. Um, and then I got fired and... Uh, and uh, this was in Australia in 2007. And um, I was walking home from work and I've had this throughout my life. I've had this voice in the back of my head at very pivotal moments in my life. And I was talking to myself and I was saying, like, I, you can get a job tomorrow because I was so, I'd won so many awards and I was so well known. So it was just like, you can get a job at any agency tomorrow. And I had this voice in my head, like, but you, you hate it. It's like, you don't want to go back. So I came home and then my ex-wife was there and I said, I don't think I want to go back to work. Like I, I just got fired and I can get a job tomorrow and um, I don't think I want to do it. And we decided that I was going to take some time off. And uh, so I took three months off. And then during that time, and I've always done photography on the side. I've been a passionate amateur photographer since 1998. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then someone asked me during that time that I was taking a hiatus from work, Said, can you shoot? Can you shoot my wedding? And I laughed out loud, and I said, "No. Why would I? Why would I want to do something that stupid? Like shoot a wedding is like the part of my French, but it's like the ass end of photography. It's like that. It's just what people do when they can't do anything else. Like 
what commercial photographers end up doing when they're not good enough um, and all that stuff. And um, But I was also a creative director in advertising. So other part of my brain said, why is it so bad? What is it that's bad? And, and does it have to be bad? Um, so I started just going down the rabbit hole and I started looking at what people were doing. And mind you, this is in 2007. There's not a lot of good wedding photography around. We're talking... The people who do what people are doing today were maybe counted on 10 people in the world who did that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I found some people who did really amazing work. Um, Sean Flanagan was one of them and a bunch of others. And in Australia, I found Sam Blake and became friends with Dan O'Day. And, and a, a small clique of people who were doing the same type of work that I wanted to do. Um, and I went in and I... I didn't shoot that wedding I was talking about, but I shot and someone else asked me because I had a portfolio of photos. And so I decided to shoot a wedding just for fun. Um, and I have, I've been producing, shooting, directing commercials for a long time. So for me, it wasn't at all a stretch to tell a story in images. I mean, I've put together storyboards and stuff for over 10 years. So for me, it's yeah. like, that's just what I do. And uh, so for me, it was a matter of, how do I want to tell this story? Um, and for me, it made sense to tell the whole story, like be there from the start of the day to the end of the day and, and, and not do any of the cheesy stuff and not do any of the stuff that didn't resonate with the people I was shooting. Um, and then I put together a slideshow and then I presented that to them. And then I put it up on a website um, and the whole, <laughs> the whole world exploded. Um, like people were going bananas from the day I posted it. And I was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's a wedding that I shot. And they were like, yeah, but this doesn't look like any other wedding stuff. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's, that's, that's the goal. Um, <laughs> but it went from, I've shot one wedding to, I shot 40 weddings my first year. And then nine months into shooting weddings, uh, I was contacted by an American magazine called American Photo, and they said, we, we want to name you one of the top 10 wedding photographers in the world. And I was like, I just started shooting. But um, and I said, we know. But um, anyway, so I became some sort of poster boy of what wedding photography is today, which is more story-based and less um, staged and more about telling the story of the people who were there and, and less about hero shots um, and less about creating 20 kick-ass images and more about telling a good story. Um, and then I just ran with it, basically. And then from year one, I shot 40 weddings and then 65 and then 70 weddings um, and then just went with it. And from having been really successful in advertising, I ironically made three times as much money in wedding photography within a year and a half of shooting weddings. And uh, it, ironically, it was a goal of mine. I, have, I set goals to, if you're going to shoot weddings, I want to make sure that I make enough money to provide for my family. Um, so I said to myself, if you don't make $150,000 from weddings within a year, then you go back to advertising or you find another job. And I was like, that's, that's not really reasonable mm -hmm. to think that you can do that. But yeah. I was, I did, Two hundred thousand dollars within within a year, and then yeah. Um, yeah. within three years, I made eight hundred thousand uh, dollars. So for me, that was a goal initially, but those things change when once I reach that sort of like okay, I can make money from this, then that's not interesting anymore. And I've always been like that. Once you win an award, or once you've shot a type of wedding, or once you've shot a celebrity wedding, or once you've done a destination wedding, or once you've taught a workshop, then I'm like. Okay, how can I do this better? How can I improve on this? And and the things like making money became less important, and creating things that people believed in became more important. And then I started sort of just checking myself and um, and just making sure that I was doing what I was saying that I was doing. Um, but it also I, I had a bit of a in two thousand and fourteen. I shot a massive wedding in Kenya um, and I realized that I've been, I was doing again what I was doing in advertising. I've just been climbing the ladder and shooting more and more insane weddings. And here I was standing on the Savannah in Kenya shooting a wedding of a billionaire and his wife. And I knew nothing about them. I'm just one guy who flew in 
and I was crying because it was so spectacular. I was like, there's a lion over there and there's like a storm in the background. And it was like, I'd never shoot anything like this ever again. But I realized I don't even know. I don't know anything about what makes these people tick. I don't know how they met. I don't know how they behave around each other and stuff. So I, I kind of went home and decided to, I need to sort of just back again. I need to rewrite my story. And, um, and started again then in 2014, trying to create more meaningful stories and less about me, less about building a portfolio, less about taking that kick-ass photo on a mountain or put a couple in a river naked. It's like that's I've tried to do that stuff, but I realized it's so self-indulgent. It's just like it's not about them. They might go along with it because they want to humor me or whatever. But and in the end, I was just producing weddings or images that I felt like I just want to do new things all the time. And in the end, I was like, that's not what this is about. Like I, um, and I had some experiences where that sort of reset my, all my calibration where people, parents died and that sort of stuff when I was shooting a wedding and not at the wedding, but afterwards. And they came to me like a couple of years later saying, thanks for the photos you took. Uh, we didn't think that we appreciate the photo so much, but today I want to thank you for the photos you took of, of my dad, who sadly passed away last week, and we're going to use the photos you took um, on his coffin and stuff like that. And I realized, man, it's like I have a responsibility here to them and not so much to me. And then everything shifted, and then I started shifting my how I teach and what I talk about to um, take myself out of the equation. I think that as soon as you remove... There's a famous portrait photographer called Plato um, who shot every world leader in the world. And he says, there's only room for one ego in the room. Um, there's only, and, uh, and I believe that's true. Like you have to remove yourself from, from the equation and, and go in with service in mind. And, and, and it's not easy to do. Like, because uh, we all have reasons for having a bad day or people might be treating you badly or whatever, but you need to just, it's like meditation practice. You just need to keep reminding yourself why you're doing it. And, and, um, and I've failed more than I've succeeded. But when you succeed, you're telling a story that's going to last a lot longer than the images that win, uh, you know, looks like weddings, blah, blah, blah. Or uh, there's nothing wrong with the competitions. I've competed in them and I've done it and successfully and all that sort of stuff. But I think that it's not what this is about, at least not for me. And I think that the more I shoot, and I'm probably at the end of my rope when it comes to how long I want to do this, then I feel like if you're at the end of your career doing this, then you should go out doing what you believe in and not just aim for, what if I can shoot an A-list celebrity? It's like, it's not, yeah, I'll tell you, it's not, that much fun to begin with and uh, be I've shot on all I've shot on five continents I've shot celebrities and destination weddings I've shot over 400 destination weddings and 575 weddings in total and it's just like that's not a lot that will blow me away anymore um, except for connection with the couple that I'm shooting like you can go in and and feel like you've done a good deed for the people you work for and that will trump I hate that word, but that will trump anything. And I think that's, it rings true. It, it could be cool to create hero images and kick off kick ass images and all that sort of stuff. But it, it's very much like fast food. It's going to not last you very long. You're like, oh, that was that great image. And then you want to move on and create another one. And, and in the process of doing that, you forget who you're working with or for. Um, so for me, um, See, long ramble. But for me, it's, it's been important to keep myself honest and humble and, and not um, – it's such an ego game and it's so easy to um, fall in love with your own voice. And I think that that's something that anyone who talks, educates, or shoots needs to be very wary of because it's just um, – we're just photographers, man. It's just like um, – if we think we're cooler than we are, <laughs> then we're in trouble. I think uh, we're we're. I don't want to say we're service providers because when I, people say that, I'm like, that's not. 
exactly what we're doing. Um, but it's part of what we're doing. We're providing a service, but that doesn't mean you should let clients and couples walk all over you. Like you have a vision and you know what you're good at and, and it's about communication, but um, just being truthful to what you do and, and making people understand that. And, and most people who book me either have followed me for many years or, um, well, that's basically the, the people I book these days or I followed you since 2010 and I wasn't, I was 14 at the time, but now I'm getting married. I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's a compliment. And, um, and I try to take that uh, responsibility very seriously because it's like, um, it's, I started noticing a couple of years into shooting that people were starting to treat me like a rock star. And I was like, this is not going to work because uh, I show up at a wedding and, and I'm not joking. Like I've signed more autographs at weddings than anyone I know. It's just like, because I was shooting for photographers and other, and then, and then it became impossible to shoot a wedding because it's like, that's the rock star over there. And I was like, I can't be a, I can't be a rock star and shoot a wedding. It's not, uh, yeah, that, that those two didn't work together. Really so, important. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's the reason why I shoot with smaller gear and that sort of stuff. Like if I would walk in with a 7,200 and a, you know, uh, a big, Nikon, whatever they're called, and behave like a rock star photographer, then then that's the photos you get back. But instead, I try and, you know, I don't even bring my cameras with me when I see couples. I like, I leave them in the car and go in and sit on the floor and go, hey, what are we doing? I was like, mm-hmm. I was hoping you would shoot my wedding. And then, you know, just deflate whoever you are and start from scratch. And I think that that's something I'm trying to do out of necessity because five years into my career, I was just, I would show up and people would, uh, yeah, I would sign autographs for brides and grooms. And I was like, that's, this is not going to work. Like this is not, um, um, A, it's not what I want to be doing, but also it becomes a self-fulfilling almost prophecy. Like you start believing in your own importance. And uh, that's also bad, bad, bad for, a bunch of things like you start think that people owe you something <laughs> while you actually owe them something and um and yeah it's easy for ego to get in between what you're doing and uh, what you're producing and uh and for me i've learned that both yeah by doing it but also from stepping away from it but i think that um any mistake that you can make i've made and and then i've learned from that and, and moved on from it i i hope i think um so for me, I have maybe 10 weddings this year and I look forward to all of them. And then they're all around the world. And um, it was something I decided early on that I wanted to do destination weddings mainly because <clears throat> I just find that people are more relaxed um, when everyone at the wedding has traveled somewhere together. They're more gelled together than, say, if you're shooting in a city. Um, I found very early on that city weddings wasn't really my jam because the couple shows up and all the guests show up. And then at nine people are like, Oh, sorry, we, you know, we have to babysitter. We have to get off and all that sort of stuff. And it just created this, um, dissonance in, in, in how people related to each other while the destination wedding was like, everyone was bonded together. And I was part of that. And it was so much easier for me to tell a story of, of what happened at that getaway compared to a city wedding. And I'm talking Paris, New York, London, all of those places, I've produced shitty work <laughs> because I just felt like uh, it was just something missing today. And I tried to analyze what that was. And a lot of the time, it was group dynamic and and people not feeling a part of what was happening. And um, so for me, it was important to... I do my best work when I get to do it that way. And uh, so for me, a destination wedding could be just going an hour away because uh, whatever. But... I do better at those kind of weddings where everyone is on a retreat or, and that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, so that's what I do. And I've always loved traveling. So this year I'm going to yeah, mainly Europe, um, few in Asia and, um, yeah, a few in the U S but, uh, enough to keep me going basically. I love it. All right. Well, so, okay. Here's what I love, man. I've, I think I've heard at this point, from us just having a lot of mutual friends and being on a lot of similar podcasts, I've heard your kind of like your origin story as a photographer yeah. a number of times. And um, 
and uh, and I mean, dude, I've been through I've been through the workshops. I've sat through this stuff just because I'm fascinated. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can only think of, and I I don't say this to flatter you, but I I hope it is flattering. But I can only think of one photographer that takes the time to be as empathetic uh, in a moment as I really try to be. Mm-hmm. And and I think I've learned a lot of that from just sort of like resonating and listening to you speak. But yeah, yeah. you know what I don't know though, and and this is the one of the reasons I've wanted to chat with you, like podcast or or not, who cares? I just I want to know like where does this wisdom and where does this sense of um, humanizing the people around you uh, come from? And then kind of part B to that. I've watched, I mean, how many times? See, like we kind of I've written you before and kind of laughed before, right? Because it's not to laugh at them. I think it's actually powerful that you have like in your in your uh, greater story workshop, right? You have people just posting photos and photos of them bawling. I think it's powerful. But the reality is you've you've found a way to tap into um just the power of a a, a fractured, a flawed heart and allow people to feel human in that. Where where are you in that? Is that is that too personal of a question? Because I feel no, like no, no, there's no. a lot. There's got to be a lot of that flawed element to Jonas. You know? Oh yeah, totally. I'm more flawed than anyone you know. Um, and I don't mean that in a funny sort of way. I think that <clears throat> for that to make any sense, I have to go back and tell you. <laughs> I'm trying to do it faster, but um, when I was 13. I found out that my father had cancer um, and found out that my parents sat me down and said, your father has cancer and he's going to die um, at 13. Uh, And for me, two things happened from that. Um, The first thing was that I decided that life's too short not to do what you want to do. Um, So I decided that, you know, here I am. And my father was older when I was born. He was 47 when I was born. So this stage 13, he was 60. And, um, and I had been doing things like kids do. I've been lining up my teddy bears a certain way in bed, very OCD, so my father wouldn't die. Um, and then I found out that he had cancer and was going to die. And I was like, fuck it. You know, whatever I'm doing it has no impact in, in what happens around me. And the second thing that happened at 13 was that I, I went into myself in a, quite a negative way. I closed myself in. And I decided I'm not going to cry. Um, I'm not going to cry. I'm going to be the strong, the eldest son and, and that sort of stuff. Because um, I figured if he's going to die, it's going to be a fast process and all that. The problem was it took 14 years for him to to die. Um, and for 14 years, I showed very little emotion. I never cried. And um, you wouldn't know if you met me. Um, I was held it together and all that sort of stuff. But I was very emotionally retracted. And, and for me, once he died, it took a couple of years for me to get back into sync with myself. Um, but what I realized was that um, I, <laughs> since I wasn't crying, I was watching movies or reading books and I wasn't moved by these things. So for me, I had this, I had this need to be moved, need to feel, um, because I hadn't done that for 13, 14 years. And I even sat down then, this is a long time ago, and I knew that if I ever write a book or if I ever do something, what I want to do is move you. I want to make you feel. And I even <laughs> I got mock-ups of my book about wedding photography called Make You Feel, because I think that's what I want to do is make you feel something. And if I don't make you feel something, I've, I've failed. But it stemmed um, from that need initially to like, you needed to make me feel, right? Yeah. Like you, so you me, wanted to be able to If I make myself feel, feel yeah. if I make myself feel, then I'm halfway there because I'm such a hard uh, person to touch. Um, or at least I used to be. Now I cry at watching American Idol and stuff. But mm. back then it was harder to make me feel something and, and stuff. So I had this discrepancy in, I just want to feel, I just want to have a bleeding heart. I just want to feel more. I just want to move people more. Um, and then I moved to Australia. I was headhunted 
for my job in advertising to Australia. And then um, in 2005, I had just moved to Melbourne in Australia. And um, blogging um, had become this big thing back in 2005, yeah, 2004 even. Um, and I was just, I have a background as a, I was a writer in advertising, by, by my father as a writer, also a writer. Um, so for me, writing didn't scare me at all. So I started writing this personal blog about living in Australia, a new life, sort of, I call it a life in exile, but it's in Swedish, so no one can read it, so don't worry about it. But um, I wrote that, and um, within three weeks, I started noticing that people found my blog, and within a year and a half, I had 300,000 followers um, who just followed my personal blog. Um, and I can say from writing three, four times a day, <clears throat> which I did during all that time for three, four years, that I, my barometer for what works and what doesn't when it comes to touching people and making people feel something, I became really good at um, knowing what works when it comes to touching people. And, and I also learned very quickly that, that it all comes down to personal stories. Because um, I, would, I would write about these ridiculous things that happened in my life. I would go to a party in Sydney. I would end up on a couch with Kevin Spacey um, when there's a bowl of cocaine on the table and he's kissing some dude who's a famous swimmer. And I was like, this is absurd. This is my life. Yeah. And I wrote about that stuff, but people would react sort of, eh, meh. It wasn't what they were interested in. And then I wrote, the day my father died, my mom called the day my father died. And then I wrote write about that. And people would just gush over the things that actually mattered. Um, the things that were made me a real person instead of these rock star stories that no one gave a shit about. So I started learning that the more personal you are, the more people are going to connect with what it is you have to share. Um, so once I started my photography business in 2007, I had four years experience. And I know someone asked a question in your group beforehand. Uh, Joseph asked sort of, what's your secret to making people connect with what you write and stuff? Four years experience writing every day, four times a day. And I think that that's what I did. And fine tuning, this works, this doesn't work. And um and what people sort of just, what people connected with. And then once I started my business, I knew that if I can connect with people, me, the person, owner of the business, then they will connect, then they will feel like they know me. And if they feel they know me, they're much more likely to book me. And that's something I've implemented to this day is that the more you can touch people, the more you can make people feel like, like they know you, the more willing they are to part with the money. And it, it comes down to neuroscience. It comes down to, um, and I've studied this stuff, so it's like it's going to sound crazy, but it's it's about our brain releasing oxy, oxytocin and serotonin and those sort of things. And, and if you can touch people, if you can make people feel something, they will release drugs in their brain that will literally make them want to spend money with you. Um, mm. And I've always done this when I was even in advertising. It's like, if you put up two photographers like this and they're both dressed the same way and the photos are look the same way, who are you going to go with? Are you going to go with whoever charges the least because you have no connection to either of them? But if you have a connection to photographer A or photographer B, I know he shot my friend's wedding. I really like those photos. You're going to go with that guy. Or that guy shared something about his son or... Uh, whatever it is, like the more personal I could be, the more people booked me. And it was just like, so I was like, okay, let's go all in then, you know? So for me, it was a matter of not self-preservation, but I knew that the more personal I am, the more I share what actually is difficult for me or what's easy for me or what I struggle with, the more there are going to be people out there having the same feelings. Um, I started in, I think, 2010. <clears throat> and mind you, when I started, I did research and I looked at what other people were doing. And one thing that was back then, people said, never put music on your website, man. It's just bad. And people are going to show close the browser and that sort of stuff. 
and music is huge in my life, H- huge thing and huge mm-hmm. inspiration. And so I was like, can I do it? Should I do it? And then there was this plugin for WordPress where you could actually put an MP3 track on your blog post. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to try and see if it works. <laughs> and I put music, I put a ben- Bon Iver track to one of my slide blog posts. And people wrote immediately, other photographers, because that's always been my audience. And they were like, that's much more impactful than with no music. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and I've just been listening to what everyone was saying to me. And I think that's the problem that I had and that people have in general. It's like, don't listen to what everyone else is saying. Like, if it makes sense for you to have music on your blog post, just do it. It's like no one has the rule book to how this is done. I was just going to say, I feel like the industry at large right now, it's like there's this fear. There's this there's this terror, honestly, to try new things. Oh, and totally. so we we <clears throat> watch we watch trend. We watch what's happening on Instagram. We watch what's happening, God forbid, on TikTok, and we just replicate or mimic it. But um, man, I I tried uh, last year. I was watching. Um, I think I was actually writing back and forth with you about this a little bit. But I was kind of watching some of the Super Eight stuff that you were doing, and and it sort of in, uh, inspired me a bit. To I shot a proposal and I mic'd the groom. Do you remember that? I, th- I think I told you about that, but I mic'd the groom um, yeah. throughout the whole proposal. And I just, it was one of the first times in my whole career I've just sprayed and prayed. I really just like, I was like, I'm just going to spray the heck down. I took far too many images. And then I, I yeah. never batch process, but I did. I just, I, I selected all and I just laid a color. And, yeah. <laughs> and then I synced it all with his, uh, with his voice. Yeah. And it was one of the most, it's interesting because I never really did anything with it because I didn't need to. It wasn't, it was, it was for them, but it was one of the coolest reactions I've ever gotten back. And I think that's what you're tapping into is this idea of like, yeah. if you just get outside of yourself and just try something, yeah. you know, I, well, people ask me like, how do you, how do I become a better writer or how do I tell a better story or, um, a by practicing, um, yeah. but B. I happen to know a few things that, like, I'm tenacious when it comes to um, creating better stories or whatever. So I, I, I do my research and all that. And like, I, I can say without going into it in too much detail is that the more senses you can activate, the more it's going to stick with someone. So if you can, and I've always found that a blog post, <clears throat> and I think I commented on uh, in your group the other day, I think that. If you just post images in a blog post and you don't write, that's one sense. That's your eyes are going to say something. If you can add words to that as well, because a lot of stories need the words. Like uh, if there's something that happened that's not easily conveyed in images, write about it. And it doesn't have to be poetic or whatever. People are so afraid of writing. It's just like this morning I went and saw so-and-so. Um, what I didn't know is that it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be. People are so afraid of writing, but I, I do believe that a lot of things cannot be conveyed just in images. So for me, so I started writing, and I I write a lot with my images, and then I was like, and then I started doing the music, and I was like, now I have another layer, which is sound, um, and then um, I started. That's a long story. So I'm, I was married and then I divorced and then uh, now I'm married again. Um, but one thing that my wedding photographers for my first wedding did, and uh, they're fantastic photographers called The Parsons. We are The Parsons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They showed up my wedding back in 2012. And, um, and the funny, funny, it's not so funny, <laughs> but it's a little bit funny. Um, we divorced within six months of our wedding. Um, I think what happened was that as a wedding photographer, I put on this, okay, plan this wedding or whatever. And, but I did it the absolute right way. Like I, I collected all my favorite people and put them on a small remote island in the middle of nowhere with no Wi-Fi reception, no phone reception. And see, let's see what happens. And it was just absolutely freaking fantastic. Like um, because connection and people that you care about and people that you love, and then it didn't matter what we did. It was just like, oh, let's have a barbecue, whatever. But, you know, it's about the people there. And then the Parsons were there. And then, bless their souls, I love them a lot. But they take a long time to edit. And we're talking 
six months, maybe mm-hmm. five months to edit something. But they do that because they put so much care into putting an end product together. And uh, mm-hmm. so I started writing them when our marriage was sort of <laughs> taking a tumble. And I was like, it be a good idea if we can see the images sooner rather than later, because it's just, you know, it's just, anyway, so they sent me the slideshow and my ex-wife and I sat down and I remember sitting there and we're like, I hope I feel something. I hope I, I hope I feel moved by this thing. And I pressed play and within four seconds, I was sitting on the floor crying. Uh, because what they had done was just on their iPhone, they had gone to my son, Noah, who was uh, six at the time, and they recorded him on the iPhone and had him narrate the slideshow. Um, And it was just like the power of sound, the power of having my son say something in that slideshow was just like layers without anything produced. And I was like, so simple, just like record sound. So then years later, 2020, during the pandemic, I was like, how can I tell better stories? And then I was like, you know, the Parsons, you know what they did? <laughs> they incorporated sound. And I'm, I just on a whim went out and bought three sound recorders, these small, tiny Philips, no, Sony sound recorders. And then I started bringing them to weddings. Um, and I bring them to anything like I meet up with a couple and I put the sound recorder on the table because sometimes you know they share stories about how they met and stuff like that and mm-hmm. um and I also started just started recording random things and I started recording things like if you're by the ocean you just go down and record the actual ocean for a bit or the palm leaves if you're on the beach and the rustling of the leaves and that sort of stuff and then I started putting those sound layering into my slideshows. Um, and then, of course, once you start getting really nerdy about it, then you, you kind of go, still still, image, still images are just still images. And then I was like, oh, man, what if I could shoot video as well or whatever? But I don't want to shoot video because I've already, dude, I've directed commercials and I've done that for a living. But I bought a Super 8 camera for my wife. And... Um, and then we started recording sound. And then we were like, I was just so blown away by the immediacy of, of that. And especially combining it with sound. So then I started doing it for my couples. And then, of course, being who I am, then I was like, more people should be doing this. So then I started teaching about it or talking about it. And then, and then of course, same thing happens. That always happens when I do something. More people get into it. And then... Of course, I can't charge what I want to charge for because uh, someone else charges three times less. But I'd rather tell people that you can do more. You can try harder to tell an impactful story, whether that's through sound, touch, smell, whatever it is. It's like, um, And I don't think we're trying hard enough. I think that what you're saying, people are afraid to try new things. There is, we're at a paradigm shift and we're at the same paradigm shift that happened when I got into the industry and the people who start looking at it now, what is everyone else doing? And I'm going to do the, sorry for swearing, the fucking opposite of that. And that's the next rock star. That's the next Fair Juristi or Jose Villa or whoever you can think of. That's who's going to do good things. Um, and there is a, and anxiety in the industry about doing anything that um, stands out. Um, We buy the same presets and we um, use the same tools. Like everyone uses pick time and everyone edits in Lightroom and everyone presents, puts album together with smart albums. And I'm like, makes no sense to me. Like literally, especially if I'm charting two, three times as much, it's like, I can't do that anymore. So, for me, I started, um, like I said, I started, okay, let's put blog posts together in a different way. Let's put slideshows together in a different way. How can I stand out when everyone, if everyone is putting it together like this, I need to be doing this. And then I'm like, I don't think I have the energy because I'm not going to be doing this for much longer. But then I'm like, someone else should do it. Like someone else should take the baton and just like, why isn't anyone running with it? Why isn't anyone? 
looking at what's done and asking themselves, if this is what people are doing, what do I want to do with it? How do I want to put my spin on what's already been done? Um, and no one is doing that. And I think it comes from people getting into wedding photography a lot younger. Um, and I think that what <laughs> you initially asked, and see, here's how I answer questions. The reason I do it differently is because I was older when I started. I think that's it. I have life experience that a lot of people don't. And I think I've gone through love and loss, death and divorce, and um, and really gut-wrenching stuff. And I think it's made me a better photographer because I think that if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have the empathy um, for the task at hand. Uh, like, uh, people, it's the most important day of your life. Well, not really, but, you know, it, it's a great day. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to treat it like that. But um, I think I both, once when I divorced, it was a really hard year. I distanced myself from, because I used to invest myself in every story I told. And then I realized that it's not healthy to do that because I'm literally living my life through my couples and not so much living my own love story with my wife. And I actually realized I have to do something about this. And that's when our marriage unraveled. And I think a lot of people do that. And I think a lot of people who shoot weddings, we do it because we love love. We do it because we love emotion. But it's also very easy to substitute that love for your own love. And that's the scary, dangerous thing that I think that we need to check ourselves and make sure that we're not doing this and then come home on Sunday and treat our spouse or girlfriend or whatever disrespectfully. It's just like uh, we do this. It's a blessing to do what we do, but take what you do and bring it home as well. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think it's so easy to exploit uh, to exploit other people's emotions in those in those oh, yeah. I've, I've we've talked um, in in one of my groups. I was I was asked to do to host a um, a workshop on how to like provoke emotional moments throughout the day, yeah. right? And and somebody asked me, like, do you do that? I said, of course, you know, absolutely, um, yeah. I do that. And they said, well, can you teach us how to do it? I said, no. And and I said, well, why, why not? And I said, because it's a it's a dangerous thing. To teach somebody to teach to teach a mass, it's one thing to do it one on one or or a few on one, but it's it's a dangerous thing to just host a workshop that says, "I want to teach you how to get people to cry," because the reality is, in just in saying that sentence, you're you're exploiting the people that you're shooting. And uh, but but what catches me, Jonas, that I thought I think is really fascinating. Um, I don't. Do you know? Have you ever met Allison Conklin? She's a uh, she's a Fujifilm, an ex photographer out of Philadelphia. I know exactly who she is. I'm not sure if we've met in person. We possibly, maybe we did in Vegas or something like that. I will, Another thing I will say in this little endeavor is that over, four, this is my 15th year shooting. And like I said, 575 weddings, I've developed a very strong um, problem, which is I don't recognize faces anymore. Um, like a, I see people and they're like, I wonder if I shot your wedding or if you came to my workshop or whatever it is. So I don't recognize people. It's like I smile and I have no idea who you are. She has a really interesting um, sort of origin story that, that it's interesting. It, it kind of correlates to yours. So um, she was on my podcast last last season and yep. she's a, a great, great friend of mine, but she sort of picked up photography after her mother passed away. Um, yep. Her dad put in a dark room downstairs in their house and her and her dad who had essentially nothing in common and, and, and she was a teenager and they, they didn't really speak very much. They kind of bonded um, over developing uh, old film negatives of her mom. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating to me um, what you just said. If I could break it down and say, this is like people that want the, they want the express lane to being a more emotional or more intentional photographer. Yeah. They, they want to they want to catch these images that feel very authentic, um, mm-hmm. but like you just said, it required you to live to get there. Yeah, and uh, and I think that probably connects the majority of people. But I would even say that about you know about Fair, about Gabe, about like yeah, yeah. these photographers that do have very emotionally intentional work. And I will I will also say that the, the people you're talking about. With some other examples, I've become really 
close friends with because how we approach life resonates uh, a lot in between us. Like Fair and I and Gabe, we talked about doing a workshop tour together <laughs> that we were going to go in an airstream around America and just teach workshops. But um, that never happened because Fair lives in Mexico and he couldn't get a visa and, you know, it's just this stuff. But, lives in Canada and they yeah. won't let anybody in the country anymore. Yeah. But what I was going to say back to Allison and the thing that I do in my workshops, because people ask me this, like, and back to my personal blog, if personal stories are so important, like your personal story, your origin story is actually important, then why aren't more people telling theirs? It's like, oh, it's just boring or I don't haven't lived. I haven't lost. I haven't divorced or whatever. Like, yeah, but you have stuff that happened that you can not spin, but you can work on and i always bring up this example in my workshops and i've done it on stage at speaking at wppi and stuff it's like imagine you have two photographers you have one there's a dude in his 40s and he's going to do an, an about me page um and he will have i guarantee it it will be a shot from waist up him holding a 70 to 200 with his camera body of choice and then his blurb will be Hi, my name is James. I shoot in the tri-state area. I shoot with professional equipment. And uh, I love nothing more than shooting couples in love. Um, get in touch and maybe I can shoot yours. And for me, who's a sucker for an emotional story, is what have you just done in that story? Zero things. Nothing. You have made me feel absolutely nothing. If, if, if anything, anything, actually, you've put the wall there. Yeah. Yeah. You you like, Dude, I don't give a shit about your camera. Yeah. Like, I don't... I don't care if you shoot professional. Anyway, so for me, if, if that comes up, but then you can go, is there another way you can tell that story? Okay. And then someone tries harder and they go, okay, my name is James. I shoot in the tri-state area. I picked up a camera first time when I was 16. Uh, shoot with professional equipment. And then I would go, hang on there. You, you picked up a camera when you were 16. Yeah. Yes. What happened then? Well, my grandfather gave me an old brownie camera. I was like, that's your story. That's your, what happened then? I fell in love with photography and the last years of his life, we shared this thing called photography together. And now I'm trying to do that for other people. And that's, that's your story. That's your backstory. That you have an origin story. You have things that have happened to you that are okay to not exploit, but to bring up. Like you have things that have happened to you. Like why are you so passionate about um, touching people? Well, I can, I can answer that because I know but a lot of people don't sit down and, and ask that for themselves. And I think that to be able to live your story, you have to be, be able to break it down and analyze, analyze it. And I, a thing that changed a lot of things for me, um, I read two books um, back in 2011, 2012, <laughs> probably just before my uh, divorce. Or um, One is a book... Um, called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years uh, by Don Miller. Um, and just to give you a brief cliff note of that book is Don Miller wrote a book called Blue, Blue as Jazz or Blue Like Jazz. Um, got this overnight success in the Christian um, community. He wrote a book. And then, his, then someone wanted to make a movie about him based on that book. So they came to his house, like a film team, like, I'm going to make a movie about you. And he was like, a bit overweight. And he was like, well, this is what I do. I sit here on the couch and I write. Mm -hmm. And he realized, that's not the story I want to live. I, I don't, I'm not living the story that I want to live. Mm -hmm. um, and he realized then that when it comes to your own story, you're the director and you're the scriptwriter. Um, and you have all the tools to change that story at any given moment. Like if you don't like what you do, if you don't like the way you shot your last wedding, you can change that to next time. And it, it's quite challenging when you think about it, but it's also necessary. And for me, I realized that my marriage or uh, my relationship was probably anyway, long story, but um, I realized I wasn't living the story that I was putting on um, and, and I needed to make changes to live the story that I wanted to live. And, and, um, and that book changed my life. I've sat on a plane to Europe and cried for like four hours straight and people come up to me and 
ask me what's going on. Or like, I just, <laughs> just read a book. Yeah. And, um, but it was necessary for me to, to live my story and to, to be open about that. And, and I used to be, before my divorce, I used to be very open about my life and stuff. And then my divorce happened and I went full clam and I stopped talking about what's going on in my personal life. And I can say for without a doubt that my booking rate went down 50, 100% because I stopped being personal and I um, put on a facade um, of cool rock star dude and, and let me cut to the chase. It doesn't work. It's like people are not interested. Um, well, there are some. You can book crazy weddings around the world where you charge $30,000, $40,000, whatever, but it's not what I want to do. I want to connect with people and I want to feel, if I'm going to be away from the people I love, I want to feel enriched and I want to feel like this did something for me on a personal level. If it doesn't, then I'm not going to book that type of client again. Like I've shot weddings you would just laugh at. They're so insane. Like I shot a 25,000, 25 million pound wedding in a castle in Ireland and there's 150 people in the in the you know planning staff, and I was like, "This is just crazy pants. This is just," uh, and I have no access to the people I'm shooting, and I'm like, and I I realized over the years that what I'm good at is putting an emotional story together, but to be able to do that, I need access, and if I don't get access, I'm just your average wedding photographer telling the same story everyone else is doing. What I'm good at is finding a way in and, and telling the story of that particular person, uh, that particular couple. And if you manage to do that, A, you have ambassadors who will shout your name from the rooftops because they, that person just you know, pierced my defenses and showed me how I am. Um, I have my, my favorite um, feedback I got from a couple... Um, in 2010, a bride wrote me and said, um, and she was crying the whole day, and, and I was just trying to make her feel beautiful and, and all that. I remember she asked me, um, will you make me look pretty? And I, re my, I replied and said, no, I won't, but I, I'll make you feel beautiful. And, um, and she laughed, and I laughed, and then afterwards she wrote me and said, you have healed parts of me, Jonas. If that's not a measure of your success, I don't know what is. And I think that's, if I can do that, if I can go in and make you feel good about yourself, um, then I've done a good thing that day. Um, if I happen to catch a kick-ass image, that's a bonus, but that is never my focus. That stopped being my focus in 2015. Um, so for seven years, I've just gone in with, Let's just see how much love I can bring to this uh, equation and see what comes out of it. Hey guys, Miles here. Hey, interrupting the podcast uh, to do this. The, the, the worst, the taboo thing that you're not supposed to do in the middle of an interview that is this fascinating with a guy that is this fascinating. But y'all, this interview just went on for a long, long time. And we want you to be able to hear and soak up all 90 minutes of it. And so we're going to cut off uh, part one today's interview with Jonas Peterson and uh, and release the next part, the second half of it next week. Hey, thank you so much for the time that you've already invested in this uh, really cool, candid conversation with Jonas. We'll see you again next week.